It's Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, former U.S. President Donald Trump was indicted again, this time over his denials that he lost the 2020 election. I've got the facts plus my analysis coming up. Second, we talk about some important economic news that means we all might have to tighten our belts and soon. Third, get out your maps because we are headed off to the African country of Niger this morning where a U.S. drone base is locked down all because of a coup d'etat. I'll explain what is going on. Then we close out the podcast with some good news, at least for those of us who are carnivores. That's coming up. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted again by Joe Biden's Department of Justice again. Well, this time it's for some pretty serious charges, all, uh, all related to what Mr. Trump did in the months after the election of 2020. So as we all know, Mr. Trump claimed then as now that he actually won that election, not Joe Biden. Well, in the 45-page indictment, the DOJ claims that Trump's protests weren't just incorrect, but criminal. They say that he engaged in three criminal conspiracies to include, first, obstructing or impeding the results of the 2020 presidential election, second, obstructing the certification of the election results on Capitol Hill, and third, preventing the right to vote and having one's vote counted. So let's talk about the evidence that the DOJ used to back up this claim. So starting in paragraph two, Biden DOJ officials claimed this, quote, for over two months after the election, Trump spread lies that there had been fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false. And the defendant, Trump, knew that they were false, but he repeated and widely disseminated them anyway, end quote. Okay, so in other words, Trump apparently, according to the DOJ, lied about the election results. He knew he was lying, but he lied anyway. And by doing so, he broke at least four federal election laws. The indictment went on to include other evidence of Trump's alleged crimes. Those include pushing state officials to ignore the popular vote. He also allegedly tried to organize alternative slates of electors for the Electoral College. And he tried to enlist then-Vice President Mike Pence to reject the final certification count for the Electoral College vote. So, my goodness, in case you're a little bit confused by this latest indictment, you are to be forgiven because it is... Just the latest against Trump of many, frankly. We've got falsifying business records and underpaying taxes in the state of New York. We've got the alleged sexual assault of a woman in New York City. We've also got the charges in Florida over the handling of classified information. And I am sorry to say, but in a couple of weeks, we will almost certainly have another set of Trump indictments. These will be related to election interference in the state of Georgia. So... There you have it, the slimmed down facts and data about this indictment issued yesterday. So to just summarize the essence of the legal argument, Trump was indicted yesterday because the DOJ says that he knew he lost the 2020 election, but he lied about it anyway. In other words, he interfered in the vote counting process. And by doing so, he broke federal election laws. With that, let's pivot from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. 
And let me start with the central legal argument of this indictment, ladies and gentlemen, as laid out yesterday by the Washington Post. Prosecutors have to prove that Trump used deceit. In other words, that he knew the truth about the 2020 election results, but that he actually lost, but chose to lie about it anyway. And that willful line, that undermined or uh, interfered rather with the work of the federal government. And that includes election counting and certifications. But there's a pretty big problem with this central legal argument. What happens if Trump actually believed what he said? In other words, what if Trump didn't lie at all, but rather he earnestly believed and believes still that the 2020 election vote was rigged? Well, in that case, this indictment falls apart. Ah, but the Biden DOJ anticipates this, and that is why they said in this indictment, quote, the defendant, Trump, was notified repeatedly that his election claims were untrue, and he deliberately disregarded the truth, end quote. So what they're arguing here is that Trump should have known the truth that he lost because so many people around him told him so. In other words, any denials of the truth by Trump are just not genuine, not credible. But my goodness, that takes us into some very dicey territory, legally and politically, because how many politicians, Democrat and Republican alike, have refused to believe the election results and argued for months, even years about it? In my lifetime, there was the Bush versus Gore case. That one certainly comes to mind. But there are loads of others. In fact, the indictment yesterday actually makes this point. I think accidentally so, but here's how. In page after page, the indictment lists people and conversations where they are saying to Trump that he's wrong, that he lost. And yet, in page after page in this indictment, Trump ignores them. Right? He never says, ah, I know that I lost, but I'm going to say that I won anyway. He never says that, at least not in this indictment. Instead, Trump keeps telling these people that they're wrong, that the election was stolen, and that it is he who actually won. So putting aside whether we agree with Trump or not on this idea of the stolen election, right, the bottom line is that the indictment's central argument falls apart if you can accept that Trump actually believes what he said. Or to repeat the logic and the argument of the Washington Post, the DOJ has to prove willful deceit, but they can't, not if Trump actually believed what he said. And yet, the Biden DOJ is prosecuting him nonetheless, all because of, if I may, sort of a Gumby-like twisted and turned argument that he should have known he was wrong because so many people were telling him that he was. And legally, with all due respect, my goodness, that is just absolutely bonkers. And that's why, to me, this indictment, it reads sort of like a, a segment on MSNBC, by a person or a writer who is a pretty angry partisan who wants to end Trump's political career by any means possible. And actually, we should talk about that. We should talk about the people who brought this case and wrote this indictment. So first, let's start with this. This is Joe Biden's Department of Justice, right? The attorney general is a Joe Biden appointee. Now, that means, of course, that we have questions about, oh, independence, shall we say, and that's because, of course, Joe Biden is Donald Trump's political opponent in next year's presidential election. All right, so that's first. Second, the prosecutor involved in this case is a fellow named Jack Smith. And if you do just some basic, simple internet research, you will see 
that he has a very long record of prosecutorial abuse and sloppiness. The most infamous case was when the Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling that tossed out one of his corruption cases back in 2016 against a Republican governor in Virginia. We also know this interesting fact about Jack Smith's family. His wife gave thousands of dollars to Joe Biden's presidential campaign, and she's given cash to the socialist representative Elon Omar of Michigan. Finally, there's this. This indictment, ladies and gentlemen, stems from a grand jury in Washington, D.C. They are the ones that agreed to bring these charges. And here's why that's relevant. D.C. residents vote for Democrats around 90 to 95 percent of the time. In other words, this indictment has been agreed to by, well, if we're going to be reasonable, a group of voters that don't like him. And that's not fair, irrespective of whether or not you like Donald Trump. Well, all of that be as it may, Mr. Trump has been indicted and he is set to appear before a judge tomorrow in Washington, D.C., That prosecutor, Jack Smith, said yesterday that he seeks a speedy trial, but that's not clear that's going to happen. As I mentioned earlier, Mr. Trump faces other criminal charges and trials coming up, too. So who knows where this one comes up in the racking and stacking of all the various criminal charges and complaints that remain. One last thing before we move on. Of all the indictments that Mr. Trump faces, in my view, this is one of the most serious. Because legally speaking, it is in Washington, D.C., with these liberal voters, if we can candidly say that, and the data show that to be true, we've also got an overzealous and politically biased prosecutor. Again, a fair telling of his record and his history demonstrates that. We've also got something that I haven't mentioned. That's an Obama-appointed judge who, to date, has been handing down the most aggressive sentences possible for January 6th protesters. Plus, I will let you know that based on what I'm hearing, Trump is actually going to face an additional charge here on sedition. So the bottom line is, to my mind's eye, this indictment is very serious. And that's because it's partisan. It's reckless. And it is an alarming development that just underlines how deeply our Department of Justice has become this self-serving weapon, a tool used by one party over the other. And that is a very dangerous development for our republic. It's one that if we keep this up, this will be a republic that we cannot keep. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. Enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners, remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards financial news. The debt rating firm called Fitch said yesterday that they would downgrade the rating of U.S. debt. And that means that our debt just got riskier and, by extension, more expensive for us to service. So let's talk briefly about what this means for the future of the country and why you should care. And to dig into this otherwise confusing issue, let's start with a thought experiment. Right, let's imagine that you've got an extra thousand bucks and you decide to buy some U.S. debt as an investment. Well, the federal government has different kinds of debt that you can buy or invest in. Right? You're going to hear words like uh, bonds and bills, but basically it means that you can invest your thousand dollars with the U.S. government for, say, 30 days or 30 years. And depending on the length of that investment, you get different interest rates. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, well, how is that interest rate set? 
Well, there's a few different ways and means to do so, but one is based on the risk that you will or will not get your money back. In other words, maybe the government defaults. So rating firms like Fitch, they actually grade government debt all around the world, offering different ratings that capture risk levels, with AAA being the highest rating and D being the lowest. In other words, those governments and companies that have those AAA ratings, they have the highest capacity to fulfill their financial obligations and almost certainly will do so. In other words, you're gonna get your money back. Well, bad news. Fitch, they just downgraded U.S. debt a little bit from AAA to AA+. And they did that, at least according to Fitch and reporting from media outlets like MarketWatch, because America has a massive amount of debt, a record $32.6 trillion. Plus, we got a whole lot of political wrangling that often gets us pretty darn close to default. So getting back to our thought experiment, this means that investors like you with that extra thousand dollars, well, you're going to be going up to Uncle Sam and saying, mm, I want a higher interest rate from you that matches the higher risk. Okay, well, that might be great news for you as an investor with that thousand dollars, but it is terrible news for U.S. taxpayers. And that's because our payments on that record $32.6 trillion debt, well, it just went up. It's kind of like if we had a national credit card and we'd just been piling on the debt like a bunch of drunken sailors making the minimum payments. And then all of a sudden, all those interest rates just went up. And so too did our minimum payment. Okay, well, great. Where are we now going to get that extra money to pay for that higher minimum payment? Well, usually from the consumer side, it means that we got to cut spending from something else and put it towards this higher payment. In terms of governments, though, it, well, generally means cutting spending, too, from, say, the education budget, uh, the defense budget, or maybe things like Social Security or Medicare, if push ever really came to shove. So that's why this Fitch downgrade of our debt matters very much. You might not feel it immediately, but you will in the form of reduced services or spending on programs that you really come to love. But no matter what, I'll keep you posted on no matter what happens. With that, let's blast off to Africa for our final brief of the morning. And I wish I could say that this is happy news, but it's not. But you know what? Hey, at least we're taking a trip to Africa, to the exotic and ancient country of Niger. And if nothing else, we can realize this morning that we're not the only ones with problems. Yes, this is a brief where misery loves company. And no better place to suffer in misery than in Niger this morning with those poor folks. And that's because the president of that country was tossed out of office by an armed rebellion. Now, the bad news for us, we've got a $110 million drone base in that nation, which should be very busy blowing up Islamic radicals. But instead, the boys over there are working on their tans. Now, you might be wondering a couple of things. First of all, where is Niger? And second, why does the U.S. have a drone base in that country at all? Well, if you're thinking those questions, I got you. First, grab those maps and let's take a look at Central Africa to the Saharan Desert. And as we look at those maps and our phones or our minds or computers, I want us to think about going back in time to the year 2018. And at that time, we're going to stop in a small city in central Niger called Agadez. It's a city with about 100,000 people that is completely surrounded by the Saharan Desert. 
Now, in centuries gone by, it was a very important way station on trade routes that stretched all the way from the west, the Atlantic uh, coast, of course, in Africa, all the way over to the Indian Ocean, crossing through ancient cities like Timbuktu. Well, this little city in Niger, Agadez, brimmed at that time and during those eras, it was full of all kinds of interesting people, the mix of cultures and tribes and religions, including, and most especially, Islam. Well, around the year 1900, the French came on, rolling in with their colonial powers, and they took the place over, well, the region, actually. Well, that started about 50, 75 years of rebellions and counter-strikes between the French and, and a whole assortment of tribes and Muslims. Well, that fight never really ended, even after the French gave up power in the 1960s. There has been an ongoing series of revolts and fights between these local groups, including the more radical Islamists who want to control the entire region, and that includes Al-Qaeda and ISIS. All right, so then in 2018, the U.S. government decided that we needed a drone base in Niger to fight those Islamic radicals, but not just in Niger, but also in neighboring countries like Mali and Chad and Burkina Faso, they too were fighting these groups of Al-Qaeda and ISIS Islamic radicals. Well, as reported by Stripes and Task and Purpose, Uncle Sam, they plunked down about 110 million of your taxpayer dollars to build something called Airbase 201. It is now home to about 1,000 U.S. troops operating something called MQ-9 Reaper drones, as well as manned aircraft. Although I should say, nothing's being operated right now. All U.S. personnel are on lockdown following the overthrow of the country's president last week by a group of Nigerian military officials. Now, the reason for the coup is a little bit muddied, almost certainly involving money for the armed forces, but probably some personalities and ego, too. But nevertheless, this latest coup marks the fourth one since Niger gained independence over 50 years ago. All right, so what does this mean and why should you care? Well, for starters, it means that your $110 million investment is no longer operational. The boys are getting suntans. To confirm, ladies and gentlemen, all counterterrorism operations have been put on ice. And not only for American operators, but also for the French forces who were there as well. And I should say, poor guys, they recently showed up to that base like a, a bunch of stray cats because they were kicked out of neighboring countries in Mali and Burkina Faso, after those countries went through some coups as well, some armed revolutions, and the new military leaders told the French to take a hike. And that takes us to our second reason to care. So I want you to look at your maps again, and I want you to look far to the west of Africa to find the country of Guinea. From Guinea, in the capital of Conakry, I want you to move east, first to Mali, then Burkina Faso, then Niger, Chad, and finally to the country of Sudan. As of this morning, all of those countries are now controlled by militaries. The civilian governments are gone, tossed out. Now, amongst these countries, we have a variety of commercial interests, like aluminum or bauxite in Guinea, or uh, uranium in Niger, or we've got that gum Arabic in Sudan. I gave you a brief on that very interesting, strange, sticky substance back on May 1st. But beyond commercial interests, each of these countries and their military leaders, I'm sorry to say, have largely or completely dumped the West and instead ran to the arms of the Russians and the Chinese. So looking at our maps, what could Moscow or Beijing possibly do 
if they had control or influence over North Central Africa from coast to coast? Well, that sounds bad, and it is. So that is why I'm going to keep watching these events in Niger and those other countries too. Plus, we should really watch to see what happens to that $110 million drone base that you paid for. Seems like we might want to keep track of all that money and all those drones. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break, remembering that if you don't hear my voice on these next messages, I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. couple questions. Do you like meat? And do you look at vegetarians like they're from Mars? Well, if you answered yes to either of those questions, then two things. One, you were a friend of mine. And second, I've got some good health news for you. Researchers at the University of Leeds in the UK examined data on 413,000 citizens of that country, exploring how diet impacted bone fractures. Specifically, they looked at how eating meat versus a vegetarian diet might lead to hip fractures, which are an absolutely devastating break for older folks that can often end up with extended hospital stays and even death. Well, if you're wondering why, here's the answer. The officials said that vegetarians are in part just too darn skinny. Their frail bodies have too little muscle mass and weak bones to protect them from inevitable falls. So while vegetarian diets do have other benefits, and they certainly do, one of them is not good hips. So there you go. Go out there and enjoy responsibly that steak, my friends, and just tell everybody as you're doing it, well, you're doing it for your hips. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.